Greetings, greetings to you all. My name is Justice Lacewell, and welcome to Hard to Swallow. For the time that I have for your attention, I'll be breaking down and explaining concepts that are rarely discussed in present day. Practices that have been long outlawed in this country, but still have a lasting generational impact on certain populations of this nation. If I were to ask you about human medical experimentation, what is your mind go? Maybe to the Jewish victims of the Nazi regime? Even recently to the testing of various coronavirus vaccinations. Rarely does the mind travel to the covered past of America's unethical human experimentation on African Americans. In order to move ahead and progress as a society, we must review the past, don't you agree? I'm going to focus on the practice of medical experimentation of enslaved African Americans, but in the realm of why it happened, why these practices were allowed to persist, and the beliefs and the mindsets of those who performed these horrendous actions. Warning. In this podcast episode, and those following, certain elements of human history are discussed that may prove to cause uneasiness or extreme discomfort. Although we welcome all listeners, younger audience may want to practice caution due to subject matter being discussed. Listener discretion advised. One of the most effective tactics used to justify anti-black racism and white supremacy has been scientific racism. That was a quote from Harvard Library in an article tired titled Scientific Racism. So let's take a moment to break down scientific racism. Harvard defines scientific racism as a history of pseudoscientific methods proving white biological superiority and flawed social studies to show inherent racial characteristics still influence society today. In layman's terms, fake scientific methods were used to falsely prove the quote-unquote inferiority of blacks and the superiority of whites, which of course was the main ingredients in justifying slavery. It was even believed that whites and blacks were two completely different species up until the early 20th century. We still see examples of scientific racism almost everywhere. For example, in the 2012 Quentin Tarantino movie titled Django Unchained, we see a scene with Leonardo DiCaprio, who was playing a plantation slave owner in America's antebellum period, explain to Jamie Foxx and Christoph Waltz, two bounty hunters, about the science of phonology. Phonology, the science that claimed an individual's character and the talents could be determined by examining the size and shape of the head, arrived in the United States in the early 19th century and flourished widely for over half a century. That quote was from Amer- Associate Professor of American Studies at Syracuse University, Professor Susan Branson, who also went on to say, The phonology is no longer considered a science in, mo- in the modern world. Its popularity and influence in antebellum America illustrate the scientific ideas were adopted into social, political, and cultural practices, and in turn, how the goals of scientific inquiry and the decimation of scientific knowledge were shaped by social and cultural circumstances and agendas. To give you a better historical grip on how impactful these false beliefs were, here is a quote from noted physician Samuel A. Cartwright in 1851 to the Louisiana Medical Association. Negroes with their smaller brains and blood vessels and their tendency toward indolence and barbarism, Carver told fellow doctors, had only to be kept benevolently in a state of submission and in awe and reverence to God had ordained. What topic was he addressing, you may ask? He was explaining to the Louisiana Medical Association, Drepetomania, two Greek words pushed together meaning runaway madness. The natural human inclination and instinct to run away from an oppressor was characterized as a madness and accepted on false terms that blacks had smaller brains and blood vessels. So I want to ask you, why were these theories and beliefs so widely accepted? How could something so, what seems so 
into the present generation ignorant be accepted in antebellum America. Medical ethicist and Harvard researcher Harriet A. Washington may have an answer for us. Although being a University of Rochester and Columbia University graduate, Harriet Washington has written a critically acclaimed book in 2007 called Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to Present. Scientific racism from the 17th century to possibly present day was not just a theory, but believed to be factual. This is a quote from a C-SPAN book interview and question and answer session with Harriet Washington. These racist and biased theories were not just theories in antebellum America, as we learned in the last quote read. Facts, not just believed by the citizen and the physician, but approved by universities and medical association boards. But in dissecting the shameful medical apartheid, an important cause is usually neglected. The history of ethically flawed medical experimentation with African Americans. Such research has played a pivotal role in forging the fear of medicine that helps perpetuate our nation's racial health goal. Historically, African Americans have been subjected to exploitative, abusive, involuntary experimentation at a rate far higher than any other ethnic groups. With this final quote from Harry Washington, let's go into more depth on how these beliefs allowed for such atrocious practices to take place. Do me a favor. Close your eyes and imagine. You're at your place of work, and for some unbeknownst reason, your superior has called you into their office. Your palms are sweaty as you begin to think of the worst of it. But it's actually something completely unexpected. Your local hospital is in need of an overnight human subjects in order to conduct trials and experiments claiming to boost work efficiency. Worst of all, your work is paying for you to be there and for you to be subjected to only your worst imaginations. Now imagine you cannot stand up and refuse. This was the case for a whole population of enslaved people right here in America. The history of human experimentation is as old as the practice of medicine and in the modern era, has always targeted disadvantages, marginalized, institutionalized, stigmatized, and vulnerable populations, prisoners, the condemned, orphans, the mentally ill, students, the poor, women, disabled, children, peoples of color, indigenous peoples, and the enslaved. That was Stephen Kinney at the University of Liverpool. So after discussing some of the false beliefs and ideologies of the scientific and medical communities during antebellum America, now we dive into the ramifications of these misconceptions. More specifically, how it perpetuated the gruesome, immoral, and hypocritical medical experimentation of enslaved African Americans. In order to attempt to fully capture this idea of why such horrendous medical experimentation was not only allowed but revealed, we must understand the two main parties behind the scenes. The first party being the slave owner, and the second party being the American medical system. Slave masters viewed their slaves as not only property, but money-making machines, and did whatever they could to make their best workers performing well. Slave, or, slave owners, clearly not in the business of ethics, were in the business of making a profit. Although African-American slaves were viewed as property, they were some of the biggest assets in antebellum America. How else were crops and raw materials to be sowed, harvested, and processed without the work of these men and women? Slave owners not just wanted to keep their slaves healthy, but also wanted to be in the best physical condition. And with this need for, the, for physically well workers, we meet our second party. Let me remind you that we cannot generalize all slave masters allow these practices. Not all slave owners allow for operation and experimentation of their slaves. Some slaves were viewed too valuable to lose, either for the work output or financial worth. But 
Dr. Henry M. Dowling of Leesburg, Virginia, had little difficulty receiving permission for autopsy on a 12-year-old slave girl with a suspected case of worms because of the victim's owner was, quote-unquote, a gentleman of intelligence and unaffected by the folklore prejudice entertained on the subject. But now we are introduced to the second and quite frankly bigger culprit, the American medical system. In this context, I'm referring to the gathering of different medical institutions and schools within the borders of the United States during antebellum, not a unified body. But all the key training networks and power bases of Southern medicine, apprenticeships, private practices, colleges, hospitals, journals, and societies operated through slavery's ruthless traffic and exploitation of black bodies. That was Stephen Kinney again. And slavery could not have existed and certainly could not have persisted without medical science. However, physicians were also dependent upon slavery, both for economic security and for the enslaved clinical material that fed American medical research and medical training that bolstered physicians' professional advancements. In Baltimore, and this was a comment by United Kingdom's Harriet Manetu, who often is reviewed as the first woman sociologist after an 1834 visit, the bodies of colored people exclusively are taken for dissection because the whites do not like it and the colored people cannot resist. Blacks, because of the helpless legal and inconsequential social positions, thus became prime candidates for medical social dissections. There was no legal protections for African Americans and antebellum America. In fact, there was laws put in place to keep them from escaping their current social positions. Southern medical institutions especially thrived off of this, with the need of specimens for training of young physicians and slave African Americans were the more often the more perfect candidates. There was no legal protection for African Americans in antebellum America. In fact, there were laws and systems put in place to keep them from escaping their current social positions. Southern, Mer Southern medical institutions especially thrived off this. With the need of specimens for training of young physicians, enslaved African Americans were more than perfect candidates. Understanding that medical experimentations on humans and dissections on cadavers, or in the other words, a deceased human body used by medical students to perform anatomy, is not just a common but standard practice for all medical institutions. Some may claim that the uses of humans is necessary, but what cannot be ignored is the blatant and extreme disproportionate violation of African American slaves for these causes. There was no consent as to these victims, because there was no way to refuse. It was unethical by definition, which leads me to my next and final point. Earlier in the podcast, I briefly mentioned the hypocrisy of the extreme and immoral conditions that enslaved African Americans were placed under for medical experimentation and examination. Not only was the practice of using helpless African Americans in white-only medical institutions contradictory by today's standards, it was also unethical by the 1847 American Medical Association standards. While unethical atrocities were taking place, here are excerpts from the American Medical Association Code of Ethics for how physicians and medical professionals should have behaved and conduct themselves. And remind you, this was written in 1847. A physician in attendance on a case should avoid expensive complications and tedious ceremonials as being beneath the dignity of true science and embarrassing to the patient and his family, whose troubles are already great. Next quote, we are under the strongest ethical obligations to preserve the character which has been awarded by the most learned men and best judges of human nature. To the members of the medical profession, 
for general and extensive knowledge, great libertarian and dignity of sentiment, and prompt effusions of beneficence. Next quote, every case committed to the charge of possession should be treated with attention, steadiness, and humanity. And our final quote, as a good citizens, it is the duty of physicians to be ever vigilant for the welfare of the community and to bear part in sustaining institutions and burdens. Now ask yourself, what part of any of those quotes or any expert from that book would take to go out and treat another group a separate way and abuse that group knowing that they can do nothing for themselves, no legal protections? There was, and I've said this before and I'll repeat myself, there was institutions put in place to keep these people in the situation that they were in. What in this book, what in the American Medical Association's Handbook for Ethical Gods in 1847 would have protected these people? This podcast, albeit history, is a piece of the story. Ever since the white line slave ship reached American shores in 1619, African Americans have been systematically abused and used in order to support and perpetuate racist white institutions. With my episode being just the beginning, my group members will take the rest of the story from here. Thank you so much for your time and your patience, and this was Hard to Swallow. Welcome to Too Hard to Swallow, a podcast about people of color being used for scientific experimentation in the medical field. Today, we will be talking about James Marion Sims. James Marion Sims was an American physician that lived from 1813 until 1883. He was arguably the most revolutionary member in his field, though he gathered a lot of attention due to his controversial methods. In this episode, we will be looking at the career, operations, and ethics of James Marion Sims. The first topic we will be covering is the career of James Marion Sims. Sims was originally from Lancaster County, South Carolina, but he relocated to Montgomery, Alabama after his first two patients died. He developed tools and surgical techniques in women's reproductive health such as the vaginal speculum and a surgical technique to repair a then-common complication during childbirth where a tear between the uterus and bladder would cause constant pain and urine leakage. He is also responsible for new techniques and tools used for reproductive examinations, and he arguably bettered healthcare for women in the 19th century. After all these accomplishments were made, he was named president of the American Medical Association and the American Gynecological Society. He later opened up the first ever woman's hospital in the 1850s. Later, a statue of Sims stood across from the New York Academy of Medicine in Central Park, and it was recently taken down in 2018 due to his controversial medical methods. The next topic we will be covering will be about the operations on enslaved women and children. Between 1846 and 1849, Sims completed experimental surgeries on at least 10 enslaved women without using any anesthetic. Three of these patients were named Lucy, Anarcha, and Betsy. He once operated 30 times on one woman, 17-year-old Anarcha. Then, after he had perfected his method, he began practicing on white women using anesthetic. Sims also practiced on enslaved infants to find a surgical treatment for neonatal tetanus. He succeeded in doing so, but the method he used was quite controversial. Sims used an awl, a tool used for making leather, to forcibly align bones in the infant's skull. And finally, on to our last topic, the ethics of James Marion Sims. The American Medical Association's Code of Medical Ethics, dating back to 1847, was rooted in the ideas of medical professionals relieving suffering, 
promoting well-being, and having a relationship of fidelity with their patients. The new updated American Medical Association's Code of Medical Ethics states that a physician must be dedicated to providing competent medical care with respect for human dignity and rights. The World Medical Association's Code of Medical Ethics states that a physician shall not let their judgment be influenced by unfair discrimination. It also states that a physician shall use healthcare resources in the best way to benefit their patients. The Hippocratic Oath, sworn by physicians since it was made in the 5th century, states that physicians must not perform procedures that they never learned to do. James Marion Sims violated all of these codes with his experimentations. Codes from when he was in practice, and even codes now. To conclude, James Marion Sims may have revolutionized his field, and possibly medicine as a whole. His means of research were gruesome and appalling, and are still debated to this day. But now you have to decide. Do the ends justify the means? Hello, and welcome back to Hard to Swallow. I'm going to be your host, Nayel Tadeo, and in today's episode, I am going to be talking about the Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in the black male and how it affected the African-American community and how it continues to affect them today. First, I am going to introduce the Tuskegee study for those who don't know what it is. The Tuskegee study was a syphilis study done on Black men in 1932 to record the natural history of syphilis in the Black community. The study focused on Black men, 399 with syphilis and 201 without. The 600 black men were told that they were being treated for bad blood, which is a local slang used for multiple ailments. In exchange of them being studied on, they were offered free medical exams, meals, and burial. Now, you may be thinking that this isn't such a bad deal, but the scientists failed to inform them of what they were actually being studied on, which was syphilis which meant that the black men did not give consent to be studied on because they were lied to. Originally, the participants were also told that the study was only going to last six months. And instead, in 1933, the researchers decided to go long-term with the experiment, which lasted 40 years, 40 years. Along with that, in 1943, penicillin was discovered to be an effective treatment for syphilis and became widely available, but the participants were not offered it. You may be thinking that the scientists didn't have the obligation to let them know, but the, the treatment was available for almost 30 years, and they were not offered it at all if the patients wanted to be treated for syphilis, they would have to go out of their way and find the cure when when the researchers knew the whole entire time and could offer this treatment to them. But instead of that, they decided not to. And the patients that were left untreated were experimented on until 1972. Now, you may be wondering, how is this ever allowed to happen? Well, as you may already know, the early 19th century in the U.S. was built on very racist concepts that influenced the culture and even the medical field. Many scientists used scientific racism to justify their beliefs and practices, 
in before the ending of slavery, scientific racism was used to justify the African slave trade. Some scientists who used this thought process thought that African men were fit to endure enslavement due to their physical strength and, quote, simple minds. This left the scientists of the Tuskegee study to use scientific racism to justify their actions. Some of the things that they believed in were that black people were very prone to STIs, low birth rates, and miscarriages. They also believed that African Americans could not be convinced to get the treatment, which allowed them to call the experiment a, a study in nature instead of a experiment. They wanted to observe the natural progression of syphilis within a community that wouldn't seek treatment. Along with that, scientific and medical authorities in the late 19th and early 20th centuries held extremely harmful pseudoscientific ideas, specifically about the sex drives and genitalia of African Americans. Black men were seen to have an eccentric perversion for white women, and all African Americans were seen as inherently immoral with insatiable sexual appetites. These racist ideas have led to harmful stereotypes within the African-American community. For example, black men are dangerous and, and black women's bodies have been heavily sexualized through media. All the abuse and mistreatment of African-Americans has caused them to lose trust in medical professionals and are less likely to participate in clinical research or other studies. Most of these feelings derive from previous experiences of oneself and others that they have heard in their communities, but some good has came from all this suffering. When the study finished in 1972, and the men finally learned the truth of what was happening to them, they sued, winning them a $9 million settlement. And on May 16, 1997, Bill Clinton, the President of the United States at the time, delivered a speech apologizing to the victims and families affected by the Tuskegee study. Along with that, the relatives of the men that were studied on opened a non-profit organization in 2014 named the Voices of Our Father's Legacy Foundation to tell the stories of the victims of the Tuskegee study. And in 2004, the last man to be involved in the study died. This is when the relatives of the victims allowed the Associated Press into their uh, annual gathering and invited the public to the ceremony where they lit candles in memory of the men. The relatives of the victims want people to know that these men weren't just men with syphilis, but men who had families and lives who were also affected by this experiment. How would you feel if one day you found out your mother's cells were taken from her and used to make a multi-million dollar medicine treatment in aid in revolutionary research without your knowledge for the past 20 years. Hello, my name is Leah. I attend Brigham Malone High School College Career Academy. I welcome you all for joining me today. And today I will be discussing the injustices done to Henrietta Lacks and her family. Henrietta Lacks was born in 1920 August 1st in Roanoke, Virginia. Born in the time period when civil rights were just starting to take off. On January 29th, 1951, Miss Lax was diagnosed with cervical cancer. 
by a physician named Howard Jones. Dr. Jones found the symptoms of abnormal pain and bleeding in the abdomen. Cervical cancer is a type of cancer that affects the cells in the cervix, which is located in the lower part of the uterus. Miss Lacks died in the Johns Hopkins Hospital in 1951 on October 4th at the age During this point in time, John Hopkins Hospital was only one of the few general hospitals that would treat African Americans. While the Hopkins Hospital would treat African American patients, it was still a segregated hospital. There would be different segregated wards for African American patients to attend. In the time period of the 1950s, there were very few restrictions on the use of information for medical needs had no access to see or have a copy of their medical records. There was no state or federal laws that would go against the sharing of medical information in line with research. Prior and post of Mrs. Slack's death, samples of her tissue would be taken from the tumor that grew as a result of the cervical cancer. These tissues taken from this cancer were found to have the ability to grow and divide infinitely. Thus, researchers gave the cells the name HeLa. At this time, researchers were fascinated by her cells as this was one of the first phenomenons to occur with cells. Due to the uniqueness of Mrs. Lax's cells, researchers and scientists began to study, test, and try and figure out why her cells could split infinitely. The Lax family was also tested. In 1973, the family was contacted by a scientist who wanted samples of the family's blood and other genetic samples. It was through this encounter that the family found out what HeLa cells were and what was happening to Henrietta's cells. It was in this moment that the family realized Mrs. Lax's cells were being used without their consent in an interview with ABC News lead attorney Benjamin Crump, he makes a statement that the whole notion of her cells being sold to this day as shadow property when everyone benefits from it but her own family, her flesh and blood. It reminisces of days of slavery when they sold black people as shadow property, shadow property and we never got the benefits from our labor or our contribution. Biospecimen research is something that has been long debated in the medical research field. Within biospecimen research, the issues of ethics and policy have been questioned and debated for a long time. It wasn't until Rebecca Skloot's publish of the book of the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks that biospecimen research and its problems was spread across the public. To get a better understanding of what biospecimen research is, I will define it. Biospecimen research, or more specifically, human biospecimen research, is the use of organic materials like tissue, blood, and urine for medical research. The research being done helps doctors and researchers to understand the human body, ways to prevent illness, the research being done helps doctors and researchers to understand the human body, ways to prevent illnesses, testing ways that could be used to prevent illnesses, and plays a part in the creation of medicine.
very problem surrounding this research is informed consent, period. It is common practice for consent for this research is a process that lets individuals make their own decision when participating in the research. This informed consent for research is a process that lets individuals make their own decisions while participating in research. This includes a clear understanding of what research is, procedures being done, risk involved, added benefits, and if there are any alternative methods. Before the official publishment of The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, some actions were taken to get justice for cases similar to Henrietta's. There was a need for regulations for human subjects, and there were multiple attempts at making these regulations. A federal policy that makes up for the lack of protection against people who are being tested on and for scientific research and other rules listed for scientific research needed to be put in place. The first attempt at these regulations being made would be in 1974 by the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare Services. This first attempt would later be revised by the Department of Health and Human Services in the early 1800s and sometime later, final revisions from 15 U.S. federal departments. The regulations made in 1991, known as Common Rule, would be created. The whole reason behind the multiple revisions and the main regulation attempts was to create. The reason there were so many revisions and different federal offices involved was the attempt to create an understanding, uniformity, and compliance with human subjects and create one system of regulations under the federal department agencies was to create understanding, uniformity, and compliance with human subjects and create one system of regulations under the federal department agencies. This goes to say that there was not problems along the way. For example, in December 4th of 1981, an executive order was concluded that elements of the intelligence community have to comply with the guidelines listed by the DHHS for the common rule. But many of these intelligent communities did not want to follow these guidelines. Fast forward to present years, the Lax family now works with the United States National Institution of Health Group to grant permission to give access to HeLa cells and their information. Unlike before, where doctors would take her information without the knowledge of the rest of the family. In partnership with the National Institute of Health, John Hopkins Hospital, in partnership with the National Institute of Health, John Hopkins Hospital is working with the Lax family to get an agreement made. This agreement requires scientists to get permission to use the Lax cells or any of her genetic blueprint. This was in the year 2013. In the past year, on December 18, 2020, the U.S. Senate passed legislation known as Holland Lead as remission to Henrietta Lacks. The main purpose of this bill was to ensure the health of families in minority communities with representation in cancer trials to receive treatments that are deserved. Overall, the story of Henrietta Lacks and her families and the injustices done unto her through the medical research field has brought a many questions has brought about many questions in ethics 
and privacy. Her family continues to work to get justice for minority communities in order to provide support for those who have faced or are in similar situations as they are. It is important to remember while Mrs. Lack's cells have provided millions of medications and genetic mapping for future medications, her cells were taken unfairly, unjustly, and made to make multi-million dollar medicines while her family sat on the sideline unaware and struggling. To wrap things up in this podcast, I would like to leave you with a question. I would like to leave the podcast off with this question in mind. With new advances in technologies and millions of ways to get genetic data, how will we know the use of genetic data will be used fairly and will people be compensated for it? Thank you for joining me again today. My name is Leah Sue and I will see you next time. In this series, we've gone over the atrocities done to people of color throughout history. From mistreatment and cruelty done by James Sims, the uncredited hero of the immortalized human cells, Henrietta Lacks, to deception and years of lies that was a Tuskegee experiment. Now we have arrived back at the present. The time of modern day medicine, research, and most importantly, abolition of segregation and the combination of those who profited off of abusing people of color for medical research. However, even with these advancements, there is still a problem present in the community that has existed since these atrocities have been going on. Medical mistrust. People of color are hit most by this problem, while holding off on getting life-saving treatments and checkups because they're afraid their doctors won't take the problem seriously, to the harmful medical myths that still persist in the medical field. In this final episode of Hard to Swallow, we'll be taking a look at how the past mistreatment of people of color still impacts them today. Let's take a deeper look into this. First, we must start by defining what medical mistrust is. So, what is it? Well, most people can agree that medical mistrust is defined as a suspicion or lack of trust in medical organizations. Notice how I say organizations instead of specific people. Because a study by the Medical Mistrust Index has found that when people are answering questions such as when healthcare organizations make mistakes, they should cover up, to healthcare organizations are more concerned about making money than taking care of people, they have found that many people distrust the policies or motivations of these institutions that are put in place, but not the people who work there. But even the term medical mistrust can be taken as victim blaming. In fact, it implies that it puts it on the community for mistrusting medical organizations, when in fact the community has been left down by the medical system time and time again, and by people who are supposed to protect them and their health. And it's definitely a problem that needs to be addressed. So what are some other modern day health challenges that are present in the medical field? Well, most of it comes from either ignorance or deception. Studies have found that African-Americans are constantly undertreated for pain related to white patients, as in African-Americans are less likely to be put on pain medication and pills than white patients because there is an ongoing myth in the medical field that is still present today that black Americans feel pain differently or don't feel as much pain as white Americans, and that's simply not true. One study reveals that half of all medical students and residents have one or more false belief about supposed biological differences between black and white patients. That is a huge issue because if we 
separate them like that, then it makes that patient less likely for their pain to be treated with as much care and time as white patients. And that can lead to more suffering and possibly even death by negligence. Bogart and other researchers have also found that medical mistrust is not just laid to past legacies of mistreatment or incidences, but also stems from the people's temporary experiences with discrimination in healthcare, from the inability to access proper health insurance, healthcare facilities, and treatments, to the institutional practices that make it more difficult for Black Americans to achieve care. Racial bias in healthcare isn't actually new. In fact, it is as old or older than our republic itself. So then how do we fix this? Like, this is a big problem, big issue that is still present in our system, especially during the global pandemic where COVID-19 vaccines are being released. Many African-Americans are distrustful of the vaccine. In fact, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, aka the NAACP, and partners report that only 14% of all Black survey respondents trusted the vaccine safety, and even a smaller 18% said they definitely get vaccinated. A problem is that vaccine information isn't readily available in African-American communities as it should be. But there is a way that we can appeal to the communities and help spread this useful information. One of those things is a barbershop, believe it or not. Barbershops. These are a popular spot for young to even middle-aged African-American males to get their hair cut, to get their face, to get their shaves, and to talk to other Black men about their experiences, whether or not be about the newest movie they saw, to even their healthcare-related issues. Barbershops represent forums of culture and camaraderie for Black men, where they can be heard by someone who can relate to their past and even present experiences. These are important in establishing trust in medical enterprises and providing cultural coordination public health messaging. If we can get health information to barbershops where they can spread it to their customers and to their friends and to their family, then this is a way that we can sort of help alleviate the medical mistrust in the African-American community. In 2018, Victor and colleagues have actually done a study that showed that 64% of Black men brought their blood pressures down to normal levels after a barbershop-based health intervention compared to the 12% control group. Not only does having someone there to validate your issues and to help who share the same experiences as you, it could also be beneficial for your health. Another thing that needs to be addressed is representation in the medical field. Only 5% of doctors are Black. That is a really small number. But Black physicians could be the key to also relieving the medical mistrust in the African-American community. Because not only do Black physicians increase information-seeking behavior among Black patients, but they also can are found, studies have also found that Black Americans were twice as likely to trust a messenger of their own racial ethnic group than one from outside it, such as a white doctor. Even infant mortality is half when Black newborns are cared for and handled by Black doctors rather than white physicians and doctors. Seeing your own race represented in the medical community can 
be liberating. It could be a relief. Because not only will the doctor most likely understand your racial experiences and past traumatic traumas, but they can also sit down and validate your issues. It can validate your concerns. And they can encourage you to look for something that could benefit you rather than to harm you. So what needs to be done now? First, we must acknowledge the past and present injustices rooted in structural racism and care delivery systems. Institutions should mandate cultural competency training for all clinicians and trainees. should even employ this in medical schools for medical students and residents that emphasizes how social determinants contribute to health and equity across communities of color. Second, we must develop messaging that acknowledges concerns while providing information and education to communities, especially low-income communities. Our communities have heightened apprehension about side effects and safely rooted in history historical abuses, but messaging them must be explicitly address these aspects in, in a cultural, sensitive way to allay fears, but they should not be targeted towards them and should not invalidate their concerns. Third, we must partner with trusted sources such as faith-based organizations like churches and, you know, Christian missionaries and etc. Political advocacy groups and grassroots organizations to engage in Black communities at the medical field in a culturally sensitive way. These community leaders who acknowledge people's genuine fears in the Black experience in healthcare are more likely to get the message across better than someone who has no prior experiences or relatability to this ethnic group. At last, we must redouble our efforts to overcome barriers and access to particularly for those who are most disenfranchised and down on their luck. We should be able to help all of those in need. Everyone should have access to proper health care without the chance of discrimination or for their fears and pains to be invalidated by the healthcare system. In that we also need representation in black physicians and doctors. There needs to be more representation in the medical field if we are to in order to conquer this giant mistrust among communities of color, not just African Americans, but also Hispanics, Asians. Native Americans, we have all been let down by the healthcare system, but we don't have to always be in fear. What needs to be done is we all need to come together in order to dispel medical mistrust and to help people get the help they need while not being afraid of medical institutions. And that is the end of our podcast. From unfortunate beginnings to optimistic endings, we the purpose of this podcast isn't to invalidate any medical professionals or to say this doctor is bad or this one is better than that one because of the race. It is meant to inform the public about why people are why people would mistrust the healthcare system and how we can move forward with this information, how we can improve our institutions and our med- the medical field for the better. Thank you for listening to my podcast, and I hope you have a wonderful day.